Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. You know, if you pay attention to any of the current magazines or the newspapers, you're going to know that there are tons of books to read on leadership and podcasts and podcasts and podcasts, not to mention this one and several other very good ones. If you're like many people I talk to, there is no time. So we have a treat for you today, which is a chance to hear the thumbnail summary of some very high professional, great inspirational leaders. And what's our key message? What's the big takeaway for you? And more importantly, what's the one question you should be asking yourself? So my guest today is Scott Miller, Scott Jeffrey Miller, a 25-year Franklin Covey associate, formerly serving as the chief marketing officer and executive vice president of thought leadership. Scott's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and Inc.com leadership columnist and creator of the Ignite Your Genius career coaching series, plus a couple of others, including Master Mentor Series. And he also hosts On Leadership with Scott Miller, which is the world's largest, fastest growing leadership podcast, reaching more than 6 million people weekly. And Scott lives in Salt Lake City in Utah with his wife and three children. Scott, welcome to the show. Wanda, my pleasure. Thank you for once again shining your spotlight onto the work that I've done. I was honored to have interviewed you on our podcast several years ago, your book, you can't know it all. It was phenomenal. Bought many copies for people in the organization and delighted to be back here today. Thanks for your abundance and generosity. Glad to have it. You know, Scott, I'm going to joke with you. Um, we were joking about this just before we started the show. This is your fourth appearance on my podcast. You sit in an inn of one now. So no one else has been on four times, which speaks something to what I believe about the kind of things that you're writing and the importance of it. And this whole notion of the Master Mentor Series, I just want to you know, give you some kudos on this one. A, to everybody listening, it's a super easy read. So you get 30 characters, you get, and all of them are best-selling authors in their own right, um, with strong personalities, people you want to know from. You get a little bit of a vignette of what Scott thinks is interesting. You get Scott's commentary on that. And you kind of get a quick summary of what their story is about. What's their takeaway? And if you're looking for some fast inspiration, it's one of those, you know, pick up one, read a chapter today, read a chapter next week. You're looking for a way to get your team to think about leadership. It's a five-page read once a month. I mean, there's a lot to be said for it. So, Scott, well done. Brilliant idea. That's gracious of you. Uh, We agree this is not war and peace or good to great. My books are, in essence, chicken soup for the leadership soul. They're meant to be light, easy, and breezy. Um, an intellectual I am not, but a synthesizer, an aggregator of insights I am. So I'm proud of how easy the series is to read. Like you said, they're episodic chapters. You can start on chapter two and go to chapter 12 and read one that will put you to sleep before bed and hopefully leave you <laughs> a little bit introspective on, uh, that's an interesting thought. I wonder if I should try or retry integrating that back into my life. Right. Or you may say it, oh, geez, I now want to go listen to that person's podcast or buy that person's book or 
you know, there, there's, it's a nice dip into 30 people in a book that I think is just, it's a very clever strategy. So kudos to you. All right. So this is volume two. Um, and we talked in another podcast about volume one. Excellent. And fantastic. Perfect. Why did you title them Master Mentors? Well, because I think mentoring is very much in vogue right now, but I think it's a principle of great careers. I don't know anybody who's not had a phenomenal career that didn't also have a trove of mentors, formal or informal, in their life. But I also think, Wanda, that we, we define the idea of mentorship much too narrowly. We define it as, you know, the CFO who sits on the third floor and she becomes your mentor or the COO or someone in the C-suite. And that's all very true. Many of us need and have benefited from mentors that have been hierarchically hire us in the organization. They're wise, they're smart. But I also think there's a type of mentorship that is accessible to everyone, meaning not all of us know our mentors. I think the most informative people in my life are people that don't know I exist. The most transformative mentors in my life are people who've written books, have podcasts, have TV programs. I go to conferences to see them speak and they live their whole lives and don't even know that I exist. But I've been able to assimilate their wisdom and genius or mistakes into my own life. In fact, you're a mentor to me before I ever met you. I read your book and it was very liberating that I can't become a genius in everything. I've got to have the maturity and the wisdom to hire smart people around me and ask smart questions and help to guide them. And then you became a friend and a mentor to me after we met. So I think I wrote them as master mentors because I think they're typically experts at what they do. And you don't have to be their best friend or even know them to bring their genius into your life. I hope I'm a little bit of a bridge to give you access to mentors that you could have in your life without it being the person on the third floor that you've been partnered with in your organization, which is also a great strategy. Right. The, um, I think you're right that there are lots of people who influence us and we don't actually ever have to meet them in person and they don't have to know that they've influenced necessarily lots of ways. I also think you call out the point that there are peers who are mentors. And, and I think we way underestimate the importance of peers as mentors. Watching somebody do that thing in a meeting that they did really well and let me copy it. Or not do it so well and let me do the opposite of that one. Either version of that one. Okay, so that's the title master mentors. What is it about these 30 that inspired you? I mean, you've got hundreds and hundreds of people. They've all appeared on your podcast. So you've got hundreds of them to choose from. What is it about these 30? Well, I think they have a story or an idea or a struggle or a triumph or some research or a best practice that can appeal to a broad audience. Now, you're going to find some mentors that hit you right where you are. Perhaps you're coming off of a divorce or you've ended a relationship or you've been released from your job or you're starting a new job or you're an entrepreneur or you've had some big self-disruption or a disruption from outside that's rocked your world. I purposely wanted these 30 mentors to be a little bit episodic, recognizing that not all of them might hit you right where you are in life, but maybe they'll teach you a lesson that you're facing that you haven't seen yet, kind of around the corner. I think they represent a broad spectrum of expertise, both in terms of gender diversity, um, uh, nationality, ethnicity, age, demographic, their expertise. I carefully curate what is a very complementary group of people that including if you don't have a career, perhaps you're a stay-at-home parent, or perhaps you're in retirement, or perhaps you're a grandmother, or 
you're a, you're a new adopted father, you, whatever it is, I think a lot of these principles actually complement each other as do the people. In fact, I, you may remember I have a 10-year, 10 10-volume 10 deal with HarperCollins, Master Mentors Volume 3 is in development right now. You very graciously agreed to let me feature you as one of the 30 in Volume 3, and I think your work is going to beautifully complement those of James Clear and Malcolm Gladwell and others have agreed to be in. So I try to make it a, a, a broad but complementary circle sphere of 30 mentors. Great. So it's not, is it, I mean, do each of these people inspire you in some way? Is there a part of uh, that as well? Yeah, that's, that, that's probably the exact point is that they said something that I thought was transformative. And maybe at first blush, it might seem elementary or even rudimentary, but in oftentimes, Wanda, it was off the air. I know on your podcast, I'm sure some of the nuggets probably get delivered when you stop taping and that five or 10 minutes afterwards, you, you probably think, oh, I wish you would have said that on air. Yeah. So yes, every one of them has inspired me, whether it was, you know, master mentor number 31, Zafar Masood, a Pakistani banker who survived a commercial airline crash, like literally fell from the sky. Whether it's Bobby Herrera, right, a, a Mexican-born American veteran who became a very successful entrepreneur that had a life-changing experience early in his life. Perhaps we'll talk about it, but I think you're right. Every one of them did inspire me. But that isn't the only criteria. I want to be certain that someone else, the reader, the listener, will also be inspired by it, by it in whatever role they are in currently in their life. Okay. All right. So inspiring in some capacity, a transformative message, transformative experience, broad range of people, personalities, nationalities, genders, every other component we would say, and can appeal to lots of people in lots of places in their life. I'm going to pay you a compliment. You do something that no other podcast host does that I know of, and I've been on hundreds. You have a remarkable ability to both think about what question you're going to ask next while still staying deeply in tune to what I'm saying and synthesize it for the listenership of your podcast. So this is a leadership competency that not just you have as a podcast host, but all of us can be thinking about as leaders, how do we keep the ball moving forward on our agenda, on our meeting, but also empathically listen to recap what the other person is saying. Wanda, you model this extremely well. It's a well-deserved compliment. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It's not easy. All right. Thank you. Um, now, I know a bunch of people have asked you this, and I know you've written about it in a couple of places. Is there a kind of like general theme? Is there any truth? for every single 31, or are these just 30 unique experiences? They are 30 unique insights. And I am asked this question with some frequency. I've thought a lot about it. I think these mentors do have two things in common. One is they generally have an abundance mindset. They're not scarce people. They've either um, experienced a trauma and lived to tell about it. They've made major mistakes and they've written to talk about it. They've had wild success and they want others to experience the key principles of their own success. So one is they're very abundant in how they share their lessons in life. And number two is, honestly, I think they have an indefatigable work ethic. Well, I, you know, No matter how successful or how many billions of dollars they've earned or how many businesses they failed and relaunched, they really are hard workers. It doesn't mean that they work 100 hours a week or you know have no life balance, but I generally find that these people have what I describe as a, a, a work ethic. 
a dogged determinism, a perseverance that separates them from others in their field. And that's why you know about them. And perhaps you don't know about someone equally as competent or successful. They just, they're good at marketing. They're good at promotion. They're good at writing and launching, but they're also willing to get on a hundred podcasts, you know, no matter how big their brand is and keep churning out the, um, the spotlight for their work. I find that to be admirable, that good old-fashioned hard work is still very relevant. I think uh, we're going to talk about this in a few minutes, too, particularly around one of the mentors that I want to discuss. I think it's so hard when you're early in your career and you see somebody who's successful and who's doing it what seems like easily with without any stress or effort and underestimate what really goes on behind the scenes to deliver that performance that you're watching or how much they've dedicated to get to that stage. I mean, I just think it's it's easy to overlook how hard that can be sometimes to get to that point. I think to your point, we all typically um, see the pivot, right? We see the inflection point. Right. You've got people like John Gray, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. You've got Jack Canfield from Chicken Soup for the Soul. You've got John Maxwell and, and many, you know, Liz Wiseman and Kim Scott. You have these amazing, Susan Cain from Quiet, right? And You've got these amazing speech speakers and authors and keynoters and coaches that have enormous fame and influence. And you would think that their wave would just be something they could ride on. But these people continue to buckle down and work super hard. And to your point earlier, you know, you didn't see how many years it took for Liz Wiseman to gather all of her research. I think it was 18, 18 years to then write and publish multipliers and another 10 years to write and publish impact players. So you're right. Uh, overnight fame is usually either ill-gotten or fleeting. There's no such thing typically as overnight fame. It usually takes 20 years to become what we know as a big overnight sensation, right? Right. And then a lot of work. All right. So let's dive in and talk about a couple of these people. Let's stop with Bobby, Her Bobby Herrera. Um, so the, if you want to have tears, it's chapter two, it's number 32 in the book. Oh my goodness, what a teardrop story, but what a powerful message. So what did you learn from Bobby? This one might be a little longer. I'll be mindful to keep my story short. Bobby Herrera wrote a book that I think is a beautiful masterpiece. It's called The Gift of Struggle. Don't go by master mentors. Go buy Bobby's book called The Gift of Struggle. It's a very short book. You can read it in an hour or less. In essence, Bobby, like I mentioned when I opened, was uh, born in Mexico. His family immigrated to America, and he was Texan. He became a very successful entrepreneur. But he shares a story how in high school, he and his brother played high school football. And every Friday night when the high school football team would take the bus after they won or lost, they would stop at a restaurant, and the entire team would get off the bus and go into the restaurant and eat, except for Bobby and his brother, because I believe there were nine kids in the Herrera family, and there wasn't money for both football cleats and dinner on Friday night. Now, they weren't going to Roos Chris. My sense is they were going to the Sizzler, but still, there was no money for that. So one particular night, one of the teammates' fathers, a very successful, wealthy businessman, reboarded the bus and walked back. And I can't share the story without getting emotional. I know, walked back to the back of the bus and said to Bobby and his high school brother, I'd like for you to be my guest at dinner tonight. I'm going to pay. No one needs to know. No one will know. In exchange, I want you to someday in the future pay this forward. It was the sizzler. It was $6. And Bobby said it was the first time ever in his life that he felt seen by someone else. Bobby couldn't see tomorrow in front of him. 
11th grade, he never felt seen by anyone. He goes on to have this amazing career, becomes a veteran in the army, opens a successful business. And 30 years later, Bobby Herrera writes the book, The Gift of Struggle. He finds this gentleman named Harold Teague. 30 years later, he invites him to come to his book launch. Harold flies in. Everyone gives him a standing ovation. Harold flies back home and calls him up the next day and says, basically, I remember that day in the bus. I had no idea the impact that had on you. It just is the insight. And you and I are both emotional listening to this because you never know the power you have to make someone else feel seen. It might be you putting your hand on their shoulder and complimenting them on how hard they work or talking about how much you appreciate their dedication to their family. Or the fact that they're maybe, like to me, they're overcoming a stutter. I have a lifelong stutter. It's a very debilitating speech impediment that has dogged me my entire life. And I had someone once in college who said to me, you know, Scott, you're a really good communicator, which was a joke because I'm a lifelong stutterer, speech therapist and speech pathology and braces four times and headgears and retainers, you name it. You never know when you could make someone else feel seen. And that's the essence of the story by Bobby Herrera's book, The Gift of Struggle. I think we way underestimate how many people feel like Bobby and what little act we could take that make people feel seen. And you're right. I do get emotional about it. Your vulnerability is really validating. And we also want that we can name those people who made us feel seen in our life as well. And now for the little power or the immense power we have, whether it's positional power, principle-centered power, confidence-based power, go tap on some people and make sure they feel seen by you. Well, I think there's a message in it, especially for leaders. Don't assume everybody who's working underneath you is feeling seen. So go check it out. So the question I want you to take away from the Bobby story is who will you help feel seen today? And that's a pretty powerful question to evaluate the success of your day by. Okay, let's turn to a less emotional story so I can get rid of the tears in my eyes. (laughs) Tashi, tell us about Tashi. Two forms of self-awareness. I love this. Yeah, so Tasha Urich is a psychologist. She wrote a very famous book called Insight. I think it's one of the best books written about self-awareness that's out there. Tasha Urich, E-U-R-I-C-H. I'll tell you, first of all, self-awareness is, I think, the fundamental reason why most people lose their jobs outside of economic downturns or economic right-sizing is because most of us don't know what it's like to work with us. We don't really know what it's like to be in a Zoom call with us or be the interviewee on a podcast. Most of us don't know what it's like to manage a project with us or be in a budgeting meeting. And I think Tasha writes this beautiful book around building our self-awareness. You have to read my story to understand the two types of self-awareness, you know, kind of internal and external, how we see ourselves and how others see us because they're very rarely congruent. Mm-hmm. But the chapter really is about just becoming much more self-aware on what it's like to be married to you, what it's like to attend an HOA meeting with you, what it's like to go to church or synagogue or a mosque with you, what it's like to be parented by you. And quite frankly, the best way to raise your self-awareness is to dip into some of your high-trust relationships and say, hey, so what was it like to be married to me until you weren't any longer? (laughs) What's it been like to be my father-in-law for 25 years? What's it been like to be 
my boss for the last two years? What's it like to work for me? And I have a whole list of questions you could ask other people, things that I do that delight you, things that I do that annoy you, and you will build a massive increase in your self-awareness. Again, I think it's the number one reason why I had to terminate dozens of people. It wasn't their lack of technical skill or their education. They could do the job. They just were sort of a, cult- a cultural wreck. Yeah. I mean, quite frankly, I don't know what it's like to be married to me. I have some sense, right? I'm fatiguing. I have a, in, you know, an, an unconquerable sense of righteousness and being smart. And I'm sure my wife could confess and does all my sins in my presence. But the chapter really is about recognizing none of us are as self-aware as we think we are. And if you want to be a better spouse or partner and friend, colleague, leader, employee, entrepreneur, take the risk of asking people you trust, you trust their motive to privately share with you some answers to specific questions. And that really is what Tasha refers to as kind of external self-awareness, because to quote Dr. Covey, our co-founder at Franklin Covey, we see the world as we are, not as it is. And most of us have such deeply inculcated mindsets around what it's like to be with us. And usually they're very, very warped. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm going to explain this in a slightly different way, because what I took away from that chapter is this notion that I know my intention most of the time. I know what I was trying to achieve. I know what was in my head. I know what I was thinking. I know what I meant to convey. What I never know is what someone received or how they felt about it or what was easy or hard about it. I just, I I rarely get that. And we don't get that feedback until it's too late, usually. Like I'm firing you and then maybe I'll tell you. Um, So, you know, if you're sitting there saying, geez, I really wish I had great feedback. I have to tell you that set of questions that you have there. If anybody had the courage to go and have those conversations, there's like 10 or 15 of them. You know, what do I do that you love? What do I do that annoys you? What do I do that makes life hard for you? What do I do that like makes life easier for you? There's just a lovely set of questions. If you had that intense conversation with somebody in your organization you trust, I promise you, you're going to come away with better feedback than you'll get on any other occasion. And your influence, your power, your credibility, your trusted brand will exponentiate. Again, the questions are light. They're not research-based. I meant them just to be fairly conversational. But to your point, if you express the vulnerability and even the confidence to ask some of these questions, you'll learn a tremendous amount of on the areas that you could improve upon, which will absolutely expand your circle of influence, your sphere of influence inside, not just your professional life, but also your personal life. I'm not sure I wrote about this, but there's a, there's two ladies that I see that walk around our block every morning at five o'clock in the morning. They're probably in their late 50s, 60s, about my age. And one of them, I kind of watch one of them, like when they, when they, when they wrap the block, the one of them talks the entire time for all six laps, every morning, every morning, every morning. And I just wonder if her walking partner has ever said to her, can I just like say two things on the walk, right? I mean, I've kind of watched them and I'm sure that one person loves talking and has no idea that she talks 99% of the time. I kind of want to just like tap on her shoulder and say, have you like given her like 75 feet to actually share what happened in her life last night? I bet you she'd love to, right? I'm sure I don't know what's going on there. Maybe it's like, maybe she's her therapist. I don't know. I think she is her therapist, just not formally. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it could easily be 
maybe they trade on the backside of the block. You know, you never know that. I will suspend judgment. By the way, that's not to meant to be about women. It happens equally in all genders and and, and ages. You know, uh, know. All right, Tashi. I love your optimism. Maybe they switch roles on the other side (laughs) of the block. (laughs) Hey, forever looking for that alternative explanation. That is what I do for a living. All right, now, one of the interesting things about the questions and about Tashi's approach is this notion that if I'm going to ask these questions, I'm going to be vulnerable, even if I ask four or five of them, not all, how 20 of them or so. It is so hard to say out of defensive territory. And by defensive, I mean where I'm trying to explain to you what I was thinking, or I'm trying to tell you, you didn't get it right. Let me explain it again. Or I'm going to dismiss, ah, it doesn't matter. I'm defending myself in some way. And the moment you stop defending, people stop telling you. So do you have advice on how to stay out of defensive territory? Beautifully set up because what you just said is so profound. Our intent is rarely someone else's experience. Right. Like right now, my intent is to show enthusiasm and energy, and I might be fatiguing someone because of the rate of my speech or the level of my voice. So first and foremost, I think it's to understand that your intent may not always be someone else's experience. That may require you to declare your intent. Wanda, my intent is to convey enthusiasm and energy. If at any point you find it's tipping over and it's impacting my credibility, hey, do me a favor, tell me, and I'll pull back a little bit. My intent is to invigorate, not to fatigue. That's the first thing, is to declare your intent. Secondly, I think, is to ask those questions in an open-hearted way. When someone does give you feedback, to your point, do not refute, dismiss, disregard. Just sit and listen. If you have to like physically close your lips to prevent yourself from saying, yeah, 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 but Jim just drives me crazy in the meetings or, oh yeah, but I was super late that day. Because like you said, as soon as you start to dismiss their feedback, they're getting burned and they're never going to come back and do it again. And the converse is true. If you can summon the restraint, the maturity, the wisdom, just to sit and listen with an open mind, not attacking your character, not attacking your your humanity, they're just giving you experience, some experience-based feedback, you could, I think, say, gosh, that took a lot of courage. Thank you for sharing that. Or, gosh, that's kind of harsh. Thank you for saying it in a way that was a little genteel. I'm kind of wounded right now. Give me five seconds. I'll come around or 10 seconds or a day. I'll come around. Just, you know, a little bit of levity can go a long way. And then when you come around, five seconds, 10 minutes, one day, say, can I just pay you a compliment? Thank you for caring enough about me to move outside of your comfort zone and share that courageous feedback. It's super helpful. I've digested it. Hey, can I ask you a couple of questions? When I do that, what do you think's going on with me? Do I seem insecure? Do I seem jealous? Am I in over my head? Am I super competitive? Because my intent is not to offend or dismiss you get the point right is i think without it being reactionary you could ask some more questions when you see me do that when does it happen how often do i do that i know you're not a psychiatrist but could you tell me what do you think's going on with me i think some heartfelt questions not immediately out of the gate could help the other person say well as a matter of fact i see it with you all the time when you're with it or i always see it with you when you're with the team from the Japanese office, or I get the sense that Tina really triggers you and you always come to the meeting like ready to fight with Tina Scott. And maybe you should just give Tina a little more latitude 
or recognize what your triggers are and don't fall into that trap all the time. I'm not trying to give advice on that, but to your point, I think it's important not to refute or dispute. Write down, ask questions, thank them for the gift they've given you and say, hey, can I digest this mm-hmm. and get over myself and come back and ask you some more questions? Right. My gosh, everyone would say yes. What happens is then that person becomes your ambassador because then when they are in your absence, and someone is trash talking you called gossip, every company's biggest cancer, that person, Juan, is going to say, gosh, you know what? That's interesting. I actually shared that feedback with Scott a couple of days ago. He actually asked for it and he actually handled it really well. I was really impressed with the way Scott handled that. And I'm actually seeing Scott being a little more deliberate about that. I think you ought to go tell Scott that. I think you'll be surprised at how well you get the point. And now these people become your ambassadors out there because now you've actually asked for the feedback, received it, and ideally even acted upon it. Says easy, does hard, but this can be transformative for your brand personally and professionally. I agree with you. I think there are two parts of this that are absolutely mandatory. One is don't say anything other than thank you, Mm. followed by I need to think about this in whatever form you want to say. No questions, no give me an example, no nothing. Because when you create that space and then come back sometime later to say, hey, can we talk more about this? You've lost the defensive part. That's a really, really important part. Beautifully said. Okay, great section of the questions in there. And the question coming out of Tashi's chapter is, do you have the courage to ask others to shine a light on your blind spots? I think that's a really important one. Colin Cowie. Re-earning the client every day. So why does this message stick with you? Well, so Colin Cowie, of course, is a very famous author, television celebrity. He's sort of the event planner to the stars, right? You'll recognize him, South African by birth, has several offices and homes here in the U.S. and Europe. He wrote a book called The Gold Standard. Mm-hmm. And in essence, it's the culmination of all of his life lessons of becoming arguably the most famous event planner in the world, whether it be state dinners or Oprah's, you know, legends of the ball to celebrity events to just, you know, corporate events as well. Don't have to be a billionaire to hire Colin Cowie. It helps, but you don't have to be. Anyway, he basically, he shares so many insights that service is the new luxury. Service. And as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, You have to kind of re-earn your client's business in every engagement. There is no resting on the laurels. The interview is great. Highly encourage people to actually watch and listen to his podcast interview with me. But the big idea here is that you don't have the right to exist as a business owner. You have to re-earn it in every experience like you, right? I mean, you're how you how you follow up, how you prospect, how you deliver value to your clients and how they refer you into others and how you treat them is your brand. And so he shares lots of examples. I mean, this is a guy who has a multi-million dollar event business across the globe, right? If you're a if you're a Saudi sheik and your daughter is getting married and the budget is a hundred million dollars and you're flying in 70 camels, then Colin Cowie rents the 747s and brings them in from Kuwait. If there's a shortage of camels in Saudi Arabia, there probably isn't. You get the point. It's an outrageous stuff. Stuff you can't relate to. And then there is like practical stuff, as in when a couple is getting married and their budget's, you know, 50 grand for their wedding, whatever their budget is, a more, a more relatable budget. And they're coming in for a first time meeting. 
Colin has an employee that's looked at their photographs online, social media, whatever wise, and they visually identify them a, walk, a block away. And they radio in. And as soon as the couple walks in the, to the door, they greet them. Scott and Wanda, welcome to our office. And they open the door. They walk in. They serve them. You know, a very similar type of experience that that couple will get at their wedding. And so just small things that whenever someone has an inbound email or phone call inquiry over the weekend when the offices aren't being answered, I believe they have a two-hour rule that, that that person has gotten back to within two hours, no matter what hour of the day it came in, that they realize that 90 plus percent of all deals are closed by the first vendor that got back in touch with the person. This is a man who has success that is unrelatable, but man, he has it dialed in on the small things, recognizing that service is the new luxury in every business. Great book, The Gold Standard. The Gold Standard. Um, I think it sets a nice point of all the things we should be thinking about in the people that we're serving. Okay. And I'm going to make an interesting spin on this one because while it's from Colin's point of view and from your chapter, it's about serving the client, the customer. But I don't see why we don't take that same mentality and turn it onto our employees. If you think about that, the luxury, the service, in the best possible, how am I treating my employees in a way that makes them feel they matter, they're important, they're luxury? I don't know. What do you think of that idea? I think it's profound because, as Liz Wiseman will tell you, something happens when we hire people. They're geniuses when we're interviewing them. And then somehow they don't become as smart as we thought they were once we hire them, which, of course, is idiotic, right? They're just as smart. I think we become complacent. I think we spend a lot of time recruiting people, not retaining people. I think we become, as leaders, always focused on what's next, what's next, who's next. And we find ourselves in the great resignation where people that did not feel valued left. Yeah. Most people weren't running to something. They were often running from something. Now, maybe they were running for ten more thousand dollars or whatever it was, the pendulum swinging back, right? But in most cases, people did not leave if they felt loved by their leader. They did not leave if they felt respected and engaged. They chose a high level of engagement based on the culture that the leader created them. Now, of course, that's a broad statement. Lots of people left for ten thousand dollars more or one more dollar an hour or whatever it was. But those that stayed stayed because they were working in a culture where they felt respected and loved and validated and served by their leader. It's a great reminder. Don't just have your eye on the next hire. Make sure you have your eye on, uh, eye on who next might leave and what are you doing to retain your top talent. It's, it's, it's a common challenge. Good people that are competent leaders find themselves into, especially when you have a broad team, you become complacent. If you don't think every one of your team members is still being recruited, by someone on LinkedIn, you're, you're asleep at the wheel. There is still as much private equity money out there today as there was two years ago. And every company that's high growth is coming after your people because it's cheaper to pay them a $10,000 raise than it is to train them from the ground up when you've been training them. So do not fall asleep at the wheel of the talent in your organization. Right. I also think that when you lose somebody that's talented, you're just handing all of your best practices to your competitors. Why would you do that? over the cost of spending a little more time with people. Okay, all right, we've done three stories. There's much more to come, but this is a perfect moment to take a break. My guest today, Scott Jeffrey Miller, um, has done many, many things, including his On Leadership with Scott Miller podcast, and the book we're talking about is Master Mentors, Volume 2. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to the show. With me today is Scott Jeffrey Miller. The book we're talking about is Master Mentors, Volume 2. And as I said at the start of the show, this is an easy way into 30 inspirational leaders, their insight about the thing that has made them successful or that they've survived or that they've learned through life. A great way to get some cool insights without having to listen to the long podcast or read the whole book. So we've talked about several of them. I want to shift now to one that we sort of teased at the very beginning, and that's Tiffany, Master Mentor number 37. Tell us the story about her, about her. Sure. So Tiffany Alice wrote a very famous book called Get Good With Money. It's basically a fairly practical financial book around your personal finances, you know, credit scores and insurances and credit cards and mortgages and things like that, right? Highly recommend her book, Get Good With Money. She's built a brand for herself. She's known as the Budget Nista. Now, Tiffany is, I believe, Nigerian by birth, American by citizenship. And her book is 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 not exclusively aimed at uh, financial challenges that Black Americans face. I learned a lot from it, but she'll readily acknowledge that she does tend to have a voice for the minority community. But what I wrote about in the book has nothing to do with personal finance, because I think Tiffany is a master at reclarifying the point that you and I made earlier about there's no such thing as overnight success. Ask, you know, Jennifer Lopez, ask Bjorn Borg, ask, you know, any any opera singer how long it took for them to burst onto the Met stage. They'll say, oh, I don't know, 30 years, right? I mean, what we generally see is people at their inflection point. We see them when they become what we think is an overnight sensation. There's no such thing. Tiffany Alice spent over a decade building a opt-in database through a newsletter and a blog and a podcast when it came time to launch her book on, by the way, a topic that's fairly saturated, right? Susie Orman and and Gene Chatsky and uh, uh, many other people. Dave Ramsey, I mean, how many ways are there to manage your credit score? But her book became a bestseller because she'd built this community, this posse of people that had opted in nearly a decade of writing blogs every week, week in, week out, never missing one. And for people who know who Tiffany Alice is as the as the budget nista, I mean, it helps to have a great book. It helps to have a great book cover. It helps to have a fun moniker like the budget nista. That's not why her book sold so well. It's not why she has a Netflix series coming out. It's because she did the painstaking work of a decade of building this brand and this business very silently and quietly. And then when it was time to launch, she had a built-in network for her. And I think a lot of us forget, you know, that took a decade for most people to break out. You look at Harrison Ford and look at Ben Affleck and all the screenplays and movies they taped and things that did not go well. Most of your Hollywood celebrities that are household names, you have no idea. Matthew McConaughey is a friend of mine. I mean, you look at his track record of all the parts he tried out for or sitcoms that never got released or movies that got half produced and the budget ran out and was never released. I mean, imagine taping a movie for a year, never got released. Don't forget the road to success is typically paid with lots of mistakes, lots of failures, and a lot of building your brand. So when it does become your moment, you've got it there to work with. Right. Um, everybody writes book who's not written a book before, way underestimate. You've written about this, Scott, and talked about it. Way underestimates. It's not because the book is clever. It's because you've got a following and a market that's ready to buy you. And I just want you to think about 10 years every week, writing a blog every week, figuring out what works, what doesn't, but sticking with it and not giving up. Like that is just, that's work ethic. 
Yeah. All right, let's move to another one. Julian Treasure, number 42, listening style. Well, explain what this means and why does this matter? Yeah, so this one is, is, uh, is draws from a Brit. His name is Julian Treasure. He has a very famous series of TED Talks. Uh, just Google TED Talk Julian Treasure, and he's got a couple hundred million views. He's a very, fairly understated guy. Uh, and in essence, the insight is, as a communicator, I think a lot of us put a disproportionate effort into our tone, our rate, our pitch, our voice inflection, our charisma, our personality, and our delivery, which are important things, you know, being an influential communicator. Like me, most of you, admit it or not, are probably always in selling mode, persuasion mode, or influence mode. My wife says I never step out of influence mode. And what I learned from Julian is too few of us put enough emphasis on understanding how the other person listens. I think most of our default communication styles are the way we like to receive information. I like people who are loud and energetic. That's how I speak. That's how I like to listen to people who speak. But not everyone enjoys my level of energy and voice level. So what Julian really teaches is to listen to the listening. If you want to become a more influential communicator, better understand how other people listen and perhaps vary the way in which you deliver your message to hit all the audiences. Now, that's, at some point, it might become a little bit complicated and convoluted. But the big idea here, the transformational insight is to ask yourself, have I paid the price? Have I taken a step back? Have I judiciously invested in understanding how does Wanda listen? Does Wanda like to listen? to my voice a little softer and slower like this. And perhaps Wanda right now is liking me for the first time because I'm not always in attack mode because my natural voice level is up here. This is very natural for me and arguably half the audience is feeling quite pummeled by me. That's a big insight. I think if you actually listen to any of Julian Treasure's TED Talks, you'll find them transformative and how you can become more tuned to listening, to listen to the listening of others, how they listen. I also will give another shout out. You have a lovely list in the book of a set of attributes of listening or communication style that you've accumulated over several years. If you're looking for a litany of things to think about, that is a fabulous place to go. And you've already talked about energy as one of them, but there are dozens of others, you know, pauses and pacing and visual or auditory or story time. I mean, there's just hundreds and hundreds of things to think about. So it's a lovely list there as well. The question from Julian, by the way, is are you aware of your default communication style and are you willing to adapt to the preferred communication style of different listeners in order to make a bigger point, a better point, and so on? All right. I think, you know, you said at the beginning that your themes have to do with hard work and um, abundance mindset. But I also think one of the themes that varies through here, at least that I take away, is this power of people feeling seen, heard, understood, and served. Hmm. It's, it's ultimately about how the leave the other is leaving people feeling. I think that's one of the themes that comes through on this, on this series. Hmm. All right. Well, in that thing, one of the other ones I want to talk about is, oh, you want to make a comment, Scott? Let me not no, cut you saying, off. No, I was just listening to you. Thinking that's pretty that's pretty good. Thank you. I, mean, I was just listening. I might quote you on that. <laughs> Please go right ahead. 
All right, Patty McCord, another one around communication, but from a slightly different angle. Yeah, so, so Patty McCord, sorry, sorry. Patty McCord is, I believe, the former chief people officer at Netflix early on, helped to build and grow that brand to the juggernaut that it is. Uh, she wrote a book that talked about some of the leadership lessons that she brought into and took away from working with Reed Hastings. Uh, she shares a story quite vulnerably around how when she was interviewing for the job, I believe it was with Reed Hastings, and she'd had a very successful Silicon Valley career prior to Netflix, but she basically met with Reed and Reed asked her a question and she went off on, I don't know, a two minute human resource speak tirade. And I think she was recapping it with her husband later. And Reed said to her, I had no idea what you just said about culture and engagement and values and alignment of this and that and the other. And it was probably beautiful. Uh, Patty is, of course, one of the brains behind the famous Netflix culture deck. It's a very influential PowerPoint deck that's been modified and updated several times. Google Netflix culture deck, and it's been viewed and adopted by thousands of leaders and organizations around building a great culture and values and systems and processes. But the big insight in the chapter is really how those of us that are possessing of expertise in IT or marketing or product development or finance or operations or whatever it is, we tend to have a default language. You, know, you often hear the, this phrase, human resources, which is they had a, quote, seat at the table. And some companies they do, but I think oftentimes they become a scapegoat. But there's lessons to learn from this is why is human resources always looking for a seat at the table? Sales isn't. Often marketing's not. Finance never is looking for a seat at the table. They've got a seat at the table. It's because they're speaking the language of business. They understand the business of their business. And so for those of you who perhaps have a deeply entrenched operating mindset and technical expertise and degrees more than I could ever imagine, you're naturally going to be indoctrinated into your language and you've got to be able to speak in a way that's the language of your business, to be able to explain AI in a way that someone over on the sales side or the finance side understands. Otherwise, you're just, you know, a genius in your division, right? With no influence. So Patty's chapter really reinforces how important it is to be able to master our own language and our own ideology and systems and, 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 and be able to speak in a way that is influential with other groups in the company and know the language that they need you to speak in. When you come to the table, can you speak a way that moves you outside your deeply inculcated posse, so to speak? Yeah. And speak in their language. And speak in their language. All right. And speaking their language is not speaking the language of acronyms and company speak. Because I think one of the things that I liked about Patty was getting rid of that stuff and yeah. speaking in a way that everybody could really understand what we we're talking about. And I think the big insight also from Patty, Wanda, part of the interruption is Patty, Patty reinforced to me the principle that as we, as we age up the influence ladder in organizations, we tend to overcomplicate things. We speak in much more fluid language and multisyllabic words and words that perhaps others don't always understand. And the most influential people, quite frankly, are the most plain talking, simple people that can communicate in ways that everyone understands. And not is, and they don't leave in awe of you, how smart you are, how big your vocabulary is, but that you are so talented that you could communicate in a way that everybody understood 
and got their connection to the mission, the values, and the strategy. That really is the influential leader. It's the person that can speak to a broad audience in simple ways. And their, their self-esteem, their self-confidence, their confidence doesn't come from minimizing you or belittling you because of their massive vocabulary. Well, and to that point, the question you posed from Patty for everybody to reflect on, I love, are you confident enough in your education and your skills not to use them on somebody else, but for someone else? I think that's an interesting personal reflection. Okay, I want to do one more before we run out of time. And sadly, we have this fabulous story, but about two and a half minutes to do it in. Patrick Bet David, number 47. Wow, what a story. Your future truth. Yeah, what I believe is Israeli by birth, lived in a, no, Persian. I think he's Persian, sorry. And I believe he was raised in a refugee camp, uh, grew up in California. Long story short, he wrote a book called Your Next Five Moves. It's a masterful book. Highly recommend the book your next five moves. It has a chess metaphor. I don't think most of us think past our next move or even our current move, but he's teaching you to think strategically about your career, about your program, about your strategy. And one concept that I wrote about is he shares this idea of speaking in your future truth, which I love. There's a fine line between, a, between being a pathological liar and speaking in your future truth. And you've got to find that right line for you. Are you a best-selling author? Maybe you're a month away from that. Are you, you know, on your way to your first million-dollar client? Are you hosting you know, the largest blog in your space? There's a fine line between it being not true and it to be soon true. And if you speak in your future truth in a way that deeply, I'll use the term again, inculcates your mindset, your belief system that, yeah, I am a best-selling author. It might be happening next month, but I'm on my way to that. I think it can be powerful and having your mindset influence your behaviors and your behaviors and influencing your outcomes. Speak in your future truth. Speak in your future truth. That is thinking about the future truth. And I think you're right. It's really important to make sure that there's actions to move to that future truth, not just a grand idea that someday you're going to be a best-selling awesome. author, but you haven't started writing yet. Right. Okay. Awesome. So the question from Patrick Bet-David is, based on what you're saying and doing today, what will your future truth look like? And I find that's an interesting reverse, which says, given what I'm saying today, what does it mean I'm projecting about my future? What a great set of insights. Scott, we could go on because there are others that I love, like the Guy Kawasaki story, I think Mm -hmm. is fabulous. The Sean Covey story taught me something. There's 30 of these and we've just dipped into it. So thank you. And I think inspirational. I think think the questions that each of these chapters pose are really good self-reflections as you're thinking about end of year, as you're thinking about your next step, as you're thinking about your growth. I think there's a lot of opportunity in that. So Scott, thank you. I want to thank you. I look forward to including you as one of the 30 master mentors in the third volume out in the fall of 2023. All right. Fabulous. Thank you, Scott. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please like us on your favorite podcast. If you want to know more about how to apply these, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. And otherwise, we'll see you next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.
This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum. Helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. Today, expertise equals credibility. When you know what to do and how to do it, people follow because they acknowledge that you know more. However, stepping up in your career eventually pushes you out of your comfort zone of expertise. How you lead at those moments requires new skills. We're here to show you how to survive and thrive. Join me, Wanda Wallace, on Out of the Comfort Zone at Voice America Business Channel. You can find more information at Leadership Forum, INC dot com.